Merry Christmas. Christmas. Happy New Year. Year. All right, we're ready to go. It's a great picture, eh? Have you ever felt that way? You know, you know this feeling, right? Uh, Here's here's my question for you. Have you ever experienced a moment of reflection where you're finally so fed up with your bad behavior and your wrong thinking that you just wanted to tell yourself off? Right? You're looking back over a stretch of time like the end of this year, say the last year, and you become painfully aware of the high, high cost of continuing in in what the Bible declares is sinful. And you find yourself looking in that proverbial mirror, taking a step outside of who you've been in your sin to speak a powerful message to yourself about who you want to become. And maybe all you know is that God has a richer life for you beyond living sinfully, and you you want that, you need that, and you know you need to change. And so with new courage, you say to yourself, stop it. Stop it. I want you to say that. Say stop it. Stop it. You guys are better than the first audience was. Say it a little louder. Stop it. Stop it. Right? That's what we say. Stop sinning like this. This sinfulness is getting me nowhere. This sinfulness is ruining my relationships. This sinfulness is weakening my ministry. It's destroying my life and it must end. It has to stop. So stop it. Well, that's what I want to help you with today. I want to help you as we dig into second Peter, so you can get there. We'll be reading from there in a few moments. Um, I want to give you the outline to a powerful letter to yourself about your sin. And we're going to call it, Dear Sinful Me, Stop It. It has four notes to self about what we must stop doing when we become convicted of our sin and we're ready to repent. So in order for this note to be effective, it has to be personal. This has to become our sin. We can't leave it in terms of, of, in, in vague terms. If we only speak about our sin in general terms, we keep things safe. And you have to know the Bible is a a very dangerous book when it comes to your sin. Amen? The Bible helps us get more specific and and put a little skin in the spiritual game. So in order to, to help you start getting specific, I'm going to put up four predominant heartfelt issues that drive us towards sinful thoughts and actions. Our soul care and small group leaders will recognize these right away, but I'd like each person here to identify with one of these heartfelt issues by answering this question. And here it is. Has your sinfulness in 2018 derived from anger or foolishness or despair or fear in your heart? When you look back over these last days in in this year and you think about those moments when you're like, oh, was it because you were angry? Was it because you were acting foolish? Was it because you'd, you'd lost your hope and you were in despair? Was it because you were afraid? I want you to own this. Now, I'm going to assume that everyone here is a sinner, and I hope you won't mind, but it's what the Bible assumes about us. In 1 John 1.8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I want the truth to be in us today, and I was thinking about uh, how we was going to title this message today, and what helped me was a little bit of uh, country music. I'm not a fan, but one thing I do appreciate about some of the country music I've heard is that it's usually honest. And as I was imagining this day, I thought about what can I title this sermon, and I woke up one morning, and, and I have my radio tuned to a country music sta- station. It was playing this song, and the song had this title, Dear Drunk Me. And I, I did the same thing, and I thought about it. That sounds funny. But, but it was, is this guy was writing a note to himself saying, the next time you get drunk, don't 
call your old girlfriend. And there was something real about that. And, and, and this it was a bit humorous, but it was real. He says, you know, when you drink, you're a different person. And when we sin, we're different people now. If we're in Christ, our sinfulness is not who we are. And we want to own a letter to ourselves about it. So we want to change from having it say, dear sinful me now, to each one of us choosing one of these things to say, dear angry me, stop it. Or dear foolish me, stop it. Or dear despairing me, stop it. Or dear fearful me, stop it. I'm done with my sin. I'm choosing to repent and I'm going to walk closer with Christ. So I want each of you right now, just in in your mind, or if you're really bold, go ahead and scratch out the word sinful and put in what you think might be your issue. And while you do that, let me pray, because if we're going to go after this, we need the Lord's help. Father, I I thank you for this morning, the opportunity to look into your word. And and we want to go after what you want us to go after today. Father, you've led us away from sin, to not be characterized by it anymore in our hearts. And and Lord, would you show us today what we need to change? Would you help us to make this word personal? We want to cooperate with you and be closer to you in 2019 than we were in 2018. So God, would you help us to do that today in Jesus' name? I pray. Amen. So as we get into Peter, we're going to find that he's writing to people who want to walk closely with the Lord Jesus Christ. And his opening words in this first chapter of the second letter uh, help us by motivating us to give up our sinful ways. Peter thinks of Christians as people who have stopped sinning. They've stopped sinning because they want to pursue the divine life and the virtues that come from following Jesus Christ. Would you look at this with me? Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Simeon or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, maybe you don't have all of that yet, but this last line is something that should interest you. I want a richly provided entrance into the Lord, to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What I don't want is for my anger or my foolishness or despair or fear to render me ineffective or unfruitful for Christ. So when I'm struggling 
I must stop thinking Jesus loves me less when his love for me is always the same. Ready to begin this letter to ourselves? All right, let's start. How often does the feeling of being loved less or not loved at all become the excuse for doing what we know is wrong? How often does that feel like, ah, I'm not really one of God's favorite people. And, and we use that feeling as an excuse to sin. We can get tempted to think Jesus must love certain people more than others based on how blessed they appear to be. And when we get thinking like this, if we're really honest, we give ourselves permission to go ahead and sin by venting our anger or acting foolishly or giving in to despair or withdrawing in our fears. It's basic to our existence of, as human beings to compare ourselves to each other and draw conclusions on what we see rather than what God declares about us. You may look around and see another believer's life going really well. They have those relationships at work and, and, and with their friends that you just admire. They have the gifting. They have the opportunities to enjoy it all. And based on these observations, you conclude Jesus must really love them. And then you look at your own life in comparison and think, my relationships are so disappointing. My gifts are, aren't obvious or significant, and I have little opportunities to enjoy anything at all. In comparison, it seems Jesus must love me less than he loves others. This kind of thinking is a real problem because when you think you're worthless with God, you'll probably act like it. That's what I notice. When I think I'm worthless with God, I probably act like it. And poor thinking precedes useless spiritual activity. So Peter's opening words in verses 1 and 2 refute the idea that Jesus loves some disciples more than he loves others. First, he, refutes, he, he refers to himself primarily as a servant of Christ. Two words there. Peter, a servant of an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he chooses the word servant. We can all be servants. Servant is one of the most common ways you could refer to yourself as a Christian. There's no, there's no pomp and circumstance to that term. It's just a thing. It's just who we are. And we all have that. It's a common, commonplace way of referring to ourselves. And then he calls himself an apostle. Second. Now, most of us here know that Peter was, was a high apostle. He walked very closely with Jesus. He is one of Jesus' most obviously loved followers. And his story is well documented in the Gospels and Acts. He's the one that walked on water. He's the one that denied Jesus, denied that he knew Jesus. He's the one that preached the great sermon in Acts when the church was formed and 3,000 people came to Christ. He's well known. He was handpicked and abundantly blessed. And you might compare yourself to him and all that happened in his life and think, well, God, Jesus must love him more than he loves me. But he says to his readers and to us that they have obtained, you see that in verse 1, obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. When he says ours, he's talking about other apostles, other hand-picked followers of Jesus Christ. And when it says obtained, it's describing a situation that is more like winning a prize or winning the lottery than it is about you earning something or working hard to lay hold of it. So other translations have the word received instead of obtained. And I think that's a better 
word because salvation is absolutely a gift of God's love. Now, it's important that we understand that in Christ, we have received the same gift as the apostle Peter has received. If we have the same gift that Peter has, then it's the same value. And if it's the same value, we have the same love that God had for Peter. We have that for us. We think like this around Christmas time. We begin to think about how a gift shows how much you love someone. I was tasked with the opportunity of going and getting gifts for the little, little kids in my extended family. And one of the things that I had to do was make sure I spent the same amount on each child. You know about this kind of family rule, right? Because on Christmas, you don't want the kids to open up their gifts and realize that someone got something that's great and someone else got something that seems not costly. And they start comparing themselves to each other and they think, oh, you got something more than me. You, you guys seem to like that kid better. Wah! It's a problem. And so we try to make sure all the gifts seem to have the same value. And if they have the same value, they have the same love. And so we get that. And that's what Peter's saying here. You have the same gift. You have the same love. It doesn't matter that we the apostles were first and you're the church that comes later. We have the same love. It's a gift. This is confirmed to us in the scriptures. You know some of these. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's what it means to have this faith of equal standing. We believe that. It's applied to us. This equal standing is the proof of God's love for every unique believer. And it's first a love that God had for the world. And you're of the world. You're of the world. You might think I was born in the church. You might think I was raised a Christian. But you, you weren't. You were born of the world. And, and God's love is for the world. It's not special just for Christians. It starts as a love for the world. It's always a love that goes up to sinners is what I learned from Romans uh, 5 verse 8 which says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, you're of the world, and guess what? You're a sinner. Anyone here not a sinner? You're lying. Right? You're a sinner. You're of the world, you're a sinner. But it says God loves the world, and what does God love? He loves the sinners. He, he died for sinners. John 15, verses 13 to 16, talks about it. Jesus' own words. Jesus' own words. It's a love that Jesus has for his friend. Here he describes it. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. So you are his friend, or you're welcome to be his friend. If you're of the world, if you're a sinner, God loves you, and you're welcome to be his friend. And some of you have already responded to him and become his friend you trusted and, and asked christ to forgive your sin and you walk with him we've received the same gift we have that same value and so we have the same love salvation is a gift we didn't have to earn it so if there is no greater example of love than laying down your life for a friend which is what jesus did for the church i can only conclude one logical thing even when I'm tempted to think that Jesus loves someone else, even when I'm feeling bad because I haven't kept up with the spiritual Joneses, I must conclude that he always loves me the same. His love does not come in and out like the tide. 
It's sure like a rock. And you can count on it. So I have to stop the kind of, that kind of he loves some people more thinking. I have to stop it cold by taking my eyes off of what is different, what seems to be lacking in my life, and putting my eyes back onto the things that God declares about me. And we just sang some of those together. But let me remind you, he says, I'm chosen. He says, I'm adopted. He says, I'm forgiven. He says, I'm clean. His word declares that I'm never loved less than others. I'm always loved the same. So if you've been thinking that you're loved less, stop it. You're loved the same. Let's go to the second note to self here. Stop asking God for more when he's already given all I need. Stop asking God for more when he's already given all I need. I want to move on to verses 3 and 4 here. And there may not be a finer short description of what we have in Christ than what these verses declare. On any other page of scripture, I've never found something that so grabbed my attention to help me understand what I have obtained in the gospel. We have have been given all we need to do all he wants done in the world. Let's read this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How did he do that? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Why did he do that? So that through them you may... Become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These are amazing verses. And we can read them and internalize them, but we have to believe them, and that's the struggle. I've noticed that um, sometimes my sin is not an expression of belief in these words. It's actually an expression of dissatisfaction in all that God has done for me, in all that he's given to me. Have you ever thought that way? That you're not quite satisfied with what you've received? A long-term disposition of anger or foolishness or despair or fear may reflect our tendency to want to barter with God before believing he's given us enough to deserve our obedience. It may be that you have been asking God to sweeten the deal for you before you give up your sin. Say, I'm not not really going to obey until you do a few more things for me, God. It's not enough that you've saved me. I need you to do this. So let me help you. Maybe at the beginning you were struggling to think, well, which one, am I struggling with an angry heart or a foolish heart or a fearful heart or a a despairing heart? Let me help you by describing what what each kind of heart would barter for. Angry people will barter with God for more control, authority, or power. Foolish people will barter with God for more pleasure, attention, or stuff. Despairing people will barter with God for more comfort and affirmation or escaping situations that just make them feel uncomfortable. Fearful people will barter with God for more security or acceptance and the ease, the easiness of peace. This concept of bartering with God reminds me of, of when I was in Zambia and we were uh, at the market. 
and the market there works with, with some bartering. And sometimes we love to barter. We refuse to pay unless the vendor will, sell in, will add in something to sweeten the deal. And we're taught to say a little word, embesela, which would be an indication that I'm not going to close this deal. I'm not going to give you what you want from me until you add in a few things extra. Extra the extra to the deal. So if I was buying a little souvenir, a little dish or something, I would want some imbecile spoons or some imbecile uh, uh, figurines to go with it. And they would add in more. And then I would finally do what, what they were asking me to do. And we, we think of, of this idea of going to God, asking for more as this bartering process. Because in our hearts, we're like, no, you haven't done enough for me, God, to really stop sinning. But listen, God is not a market vendor who gives more because you refuse to pay his asking price. It's silly for us to think we can barter for God when it comes to barter with God for more when it comes to our sin. He's not going to honor your request for more because he's already, if you see it in verse four, he's already set you free. He's already helped you escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's what he wants to do for you. You already have enough. You're free. You can't be freer. You're equipped. You can't get more equipment. He's already done it all. When you held out your empty hands and you brought your weary soul to God for his salvation, he answered your prayer with every promise in his book. They all became yours, promised to you. And he, he made every practical provision for you to be obedient to his commands. That's what the word all means. It means nothing is missing. Nothing has been overlooked. Nothing has been held back. As I think about how this has been supplied to me, I think about back in grade school when, when I used to take lunches to school and they were packed by my mom. My mom's lunch was great because it would have everything in it that I needed. My lunches were bad. I'd always forget something. But mom's lunches had everything I needed. How many people have ever packed a lunch for their kid and put in everything they needed? There's not enough hands going up right now. We have a lot of hungry kids in our church. So I, when my mom packed a lunch and it had everything in it, I'd get to, get to school and I'd open up my lunchbox and everything that I need is in there. The food, of course, I need that. And because I eat a lot, she'd always put in a couple extra sandwiches or stuff. There's the napkin so I can look good after I'm done eating. There's the spoon or the fork for my dessert, whatever, is the issue, whatever I need, the drinks. Some little candies so I can smile and have some sugar. A note of encouragement on a really good day when she's like, hey, I love you. Do well on your test or whatever it is. They remind me of her love, right? Maybe there's some, a little bit of emergency money so I can buy some more food just in case I'm hungrier. Just in case. Right? When my mom packed my lunch, it's very clear that she wants me to eat my lunch. She wants me to have a full meal. So she puts in everything she can think of to make sure that gets done. So imagine her surprise if I bring my lunch back and said, I couldn't eat. She'd say, why? I gave you everything you needed. And that's what I'm saying to you. If we come back with our lives and say, Lord, I couldn't obey. And you say, why? I gave you everything you needed. Everything's in there. When you came to me, I didn't hold anything back. So if you're asking for more so that you now can be enabled to stop sinning, you don't realize what you already possess. You have two massive blessings to help you stop sinning. First, he declares that we have God's promises, the word of God, 
to read daily as an encouragement or even to take it as a warning. It just wants to move us in the right direction. And they are very great and precious because they are upheld by God, who is the highest authority that you can imagine. He is the highest court in the universe. He is the king of everything. And he backs his word for you. You can trust it. So that's the first massive blessing you have. But then you have this other one. You can participate. This is amazing. Mind-blowing. You can participate in God's divine nature. Meaning this, you are not divine. Back when this was written, some people thought they had divine spirits. It hasn't been that uncommon that some people, and even today, some people think, well, I, I'm, been, I'm part of the universe, so I'm, I'm part of the divine universe. That's not what the Bible says. God is divine. We are carnal. We are of something different. And so it's this amazing statement that because of our new life with Christ, we can participate with God's divine nature. It's an amazing blessing. And the Holy Spirit that, that Jesus promised to us lives inside a Christian and works from within the Christian to increase your desire to obey and decrease your interest in following evil ways and evil thoughts. The Holy Spirit is empowering you even giving you the power now to speak to your own sin and tell yourself, stop it. You're free. You don't need anything more from God. He's already given you all you need. Do you see that? Can you see that this morning? Let's continue building this note to ourselves, this letter. The third thing we'll write to ourselves is stop making half-hearted attempts at growth when my full Effort is due. We all understand this idea of half-heartedness, right? We're thankful when people make a full-hearted attempt. Joel, who is playing the keyboard here, he has not made a half-hearted attempt to learn how to play the keyboard, and we appreciate it. He makes a full, full-hearted attempt to lead us. Amanda was, was here uh, singing, and she, does, she was not making a half-hearted attempt at singing. She was making a full-hearted attempt at learning to do that, and we really appreciate that. Megan was playing the violin. And we want to be very thankful she was not making a half-hearted attempt at that. <laughs> I was thinking I might pick this up and give you a half-hearted attempt at, at playing the violin, but I don't think anybody wants that. Right? Half-hearted attempts, we're not supposed to do that. So those are some examples. I was thinking of one because I, 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 I like tumbling around. Some people know that about me, but uh, I don't do it as much anymore. But I was thinking about backflips, about learning to do a backflip and how, that, how bad that would go if you did a half-hearted attempt at that. Right? If you, if, I, I know you guys are thinking, why are we talking about backflips? But think about this. A backflip is something you can only do if you commit your whole heart to it. If you try it half-hearted, you're going to land on your head. If you don't believe me, you have homework today. <laughs> so let's just take from that example thinking about our Christian lives. And you can think about this last year. And if you've been struggling with sin, perhaps you felt like you've landed on your head a lot more than you've landed on your feet. And you're wondering, why does that happen? Well, let's look at it. Maybe you came to church and you got all excited about a change, but as the year went on, you realized that your excitement to grow spiritually outpaced your effort. And you made some attempts here and there early on, but once the excitement died down, you realized you hadn't progressed towards maturity. That's a half-hearted attempt at growth. And it comes with a high cost. And to help underline it, I have this quote from someone named D.L. Aiken, who is the president of a theological seminary, a big one, and he's written something here that I just resonated deep with me. It's about half-heartedness. This is what he says. 
Your life of indifference to the risen Christ and of half-hearted attention now and then to a few of his commandments will appear on that day, which is judgment day, as supremely blameworthy and infinitely foolish. And you will weep that you did not change. Faced with the fact that we have everything that God wants us to have so we can change, if we show up at judgment day and we've done nothing, it's going to be a sad moment for us. So we need to understand, how do we end up on our heads instead of ending up on our feet? Well, it can be tempting to look back at what's, what we're told about in verses 3 and 4 and think that Christ has provided everything for us and that there's nothing significant for us to do in our Christian life to grow. But Peter reaches the opposite conclusion. And he says, for this very reason, for the things I just told you about in verses 3 and 4, you need to make every effort. If God has done all for you, you need to make every effort to supplement your faith, to build on it. These words, every effort, and supplement your faith, there's meaning in them. There's this, there's this haste about it. There's this hustle about it. There's this effort and urgency to it that, that it would be something that you want to get after to do with diligence. Half-hearted approaches to this would be to dilly-dally and put off working on your spiritual growth unless it's convenient or easy to do. A half-hearted approach, I hate to say it, would be just to show up at church and take in a sermon. A half-hearted approach would just be to play Christian music on your way to work. It's, a full, it's not a full effort. Every effort means to make it a priority until the goal is achieved. Behind these words, there's also this sense of fully outfitting ourselves with the qualities that are about to be listed. And when I think of an outfitter, I, I think of what it's like to go uh, um, whitewater rafting. I've done that a couple times with my family. Maybe someone else has done that. Um, but when you go to do that and you're a novice or something, you start off at the outfitters and they make you wear the helmet, right? And the life jacket. And they make sure you have the, the right clothing on. And they fit you with a paddle and water shoes and, and a boat that will survive the rapids. They fully outfit you. And they, they make sure that you are equipped to survive what's coming next. And that's what he's saying for you. You've got to put every effort to make sure that you're fully equipped for this journey. That's our response to finding out that God has provided us with all we need. So a full-hearted follower of Christ will be working on developing these qualities in their life all the time, from first thing in the morning to the last thing at night and every hour in between. <clears throat> so quickly, what can we say about each of these upcoming traits so that we can bring them into greater quality, into greater clarity, sorry. As I've been studying in Peter, I've been reading this book by an, another author named William Barclay. He's a, a, a scholar and, a, and a, a, a preacher and a writer from the past. And he has all these wonderful definitions, much longer paragraphs on each of these qualities. But I, I've tried to sum them up in a, in a word or a phrase that I just thought was particularly poignant for us this morning. And I'm going to have them appear on the following slides. Uh, if you want to note them, go ahead. If you want to uh, capture them and they're longer, take a picture or something like that so you have them. But I, I, find, I think you'll find these helpful. So let's talk about virtue first. Add to your faith virtue. What is it? It, it means to fulfill the purpose for which you were called to in Christ in the way Christ calls you to do it. To do it with courage and effectiveness. It's to, to live out your Christian life in exactly the way God wants you to do that. To not leave anything lacking. That's what it means to be virtuous. 
particularly in, in the Greek thinking. It was to fulfill the purpose for which you've been set aside for. That's what virtue is. Knowledge. It's the practical wisdom to deal with life. Not just this sense of, oh, I know God. God knows me. It's not just an optimistic feeling, but it's actually learning how to take God's word and apply it to your everyday decisions, moment by moment, minute by minute, second by second, choice by choice. Self-control. It's the ability to take a grip of oneself when desire tempts us towards evil behavior. In some of the discussion of this characteristic, it talked about the fact that we know as Christians that there are always things competing for our attention. There's not just the Word of God leading us to do what is right, but we still can have temptations and desires bubbling up from within that want us to do what's wrong. And so in those moments when we start to get overwhelmed by our anger or our fear or, or desire to be foolish or, or lose hope, it says, take hold of yourself, man. And do the right thing. Self-control. Steadfastness. We've talked about this word a lot from this stage. It's hupomone. The brave and courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us and the transmuting of even the worst event into another step on the upward way. Just let that one melt in a bit. It's the transmuting of even the worst event into another step on the upward way. Doesn't that remind you of Daniel? Doesn't that remind you of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Doesn't that remind you of Christians who have faced the hardest ordeals and they come out and saying, I'm good, I'm good with God, I'm, I'm sticking with him. Even if he doesn't help me, I'm being steadfast. Godliness is correctly worshiping God while correctly serving other people. This is what the Pharisees didn't do. They thought they had the worship of God. They thought it was all about the vertical and they ignored the horizontal. Or some of us, we think it's all about serving other people and therefore we're honoring God and we don't get it right. But godliness is doing both at the same time. And Jesus exuded godliness. Brotherly affection. It's seeing the claims and demands of personal relationships not as a nuisance or interruption, but integral to developing holiness. And if you want to see this as a little sharper way, let me just replace a little phrase here for you. Brotherly love, seeing the claims and demands of your small group, not as a nuisance or interruption, but as integral to developing your holiness. If we're trying to grow with God and we think that people are in the way of that, we're wrong. He wants to use other people, their problems, their needs. To have us interact with those so that we can become holy together. And finally, this love, the love that God has for us, this unfailing, a pledge from God's heart and mind, a commitment to us to give us our, to give us his best despite our worst. We need to show that kind of love to the world because God has shown it to us. Now let's look back at verse 8 in Second Peter chapter 1. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we put a full effort into building up that kind of personal Christian life based upon what Christ has done for us, we're going to be effective and productive. We won't have to worry about our lives being useless because this produces the opposite of being ineffective and unfruitful. That's what 
Peter's telling us. So let me just address one particularly hard scenario we all face when we put a full effort into following Christ. In a fallen world that loves sin more than it loves God, a full-hearted effort to grow in Christ will result in suffering at some level. But listen, even suffering, even suffering is no excuse for half-heartedness. In fact, if you choose to obey, even when you're suffering, the Bible says you made a huge breakthrough. Peter explained it in chapter 4 of the first letter. I'm just going to throw the verse up for you. It says, Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. It's a remarkable idea. Ceased from sin. Thinking back to that first image of that, ah, I can't believe I'm still stuck here. When you see the idea that you could be done with sin, being done with sin if you're willing to suffer for doing the right thing, there's a, there's, there's a truth here to lay hold of. So we tell ourselves, stop it. Stop the half-hearted attempts at growth when your full effort is due. So we're writing this letter to ourselves. And this letter is going to be more powerful to you if you've personalized it than anything that you could hear from a stage in a sermon. Because no one has the perspective that you do about what you need to start doing, or in this case, what you need to stop doing in order to grow. So this letter still needs to be yours, and we have one more line to add to it. So the fourth note to self is this. Stop squinting at the cross when forgiveness is obvious. As we move to the end of this section, Peter provides us with a little insight into why else we might not be growing. He says that the person who lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's effectively blind. Now, you know that often I wear glasses, and if you've been close enough, you see that my glasses are thick. That's because I'm nearsighted. I did a little test this week because I wanted to tell you something precise, and I measured. I actually can't see detail on my own hand when it's more than six inches away from my face. So today I'm wearing contacts. Or I'm doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but uh, so I'm nearsighted. It's like I'm blind. If I read with my glasses, I have to squint so, with my glasses off, I have to squint so harshly that my eyes may as well be closed. I'm, able, I'm unable to make out the key details about anything that's too far away. Nearsighted people will squint at what is obvious to others who can see the detail clearly from a distance. And in this case, Peter is not talking about physical eyesight. He's talking about a spiritual kind of view on what has already happened, what has been done for us in the past. He's talking about what happens to believers when they have lost sight of what Christ has done on their behalf on the cross in the past. Specifically, when Jesus went to the cross, he took our sins and he forgave them, and he wiped our record clean. And this is what each person declares at their baptism. They say, I'm forgiven in Jesus, and my record of sin is clean. But listen, if baptism is the highest point of growth in your spiritual life, something's wrong. Something is wrong. Perhaps you've been stunted in your growth, and maybe it's because you've been feeling guilty about what you've done in your anger, or your foolishness, or your despair, or your fear since publicly proclaiming to the world that I follow Christ, and the guilt has sidelined you 
and you pulled yourself back because you're afraid and you're ashamed and you don't want people to think of you all the time as a Christian. And you just continue in sin. This is a situation that saddens me and saddens all the pastors here. We, we're sad when we, we see people carrying unnecessary guilt over their past sins. We're frustrated when people will use their old sin and say, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in my old ways. Because we know that Christ set us free. People have lost sight of that detail, which means they forget that growth is still possible for them. And honestly, growth is the way forward for anyone struggling in sin. You have to stop giving attention to the sin that you've been doing and start giving attention to what should be done out of love for Jesus Christ. Jesus took your guilt, all of it, and he nailed it through his body to the cross. When he died, that guilt was dealt with. When he rose again, he broke the power of sin to condemn you. And Jesus shared his living Holy Spirit with you. And this is what allows you to make spiritual growth a top priority. God's word calls us to life beyond needless worry about the sins and our record of guilt. His word also calls us out of submission to our sinful desires. We are free. We're completely free. It has no claim over us. It can't hold us back any longer. And that's why Peter writes, Therefore, brothers, he's writing to the whole church when he says this, Be all the more diligent. He's saying this in verse 10 if you're looking for it. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You're not going to land on your head. You're going to land on your feet. So when you respond with full-hearted effort, you gain new confidence. You gain a new confidence about your ability to follow Christ without returning to sinfulness. That's going to make you a braver Christian. That's going to help you move forward with him. You also have greater confidence about what it will be like when you meet Christ in judgment. You're not going to be turned away in disgrace. Instead, with your forgiveness in full view, you're going to look forward with the whole church to a richly provided entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom. How do we respond to something like that? The worship team is just going to come and get ready to help us sing, but how do, you, how do you respond to that today? How do you stop? Because this is a frustration for all of us. Sometimes we get stuck thinking, no, this sin is just too much. So how do we stop? Well, I just want to lead you quickly in the quietness of this moment for us to, to get ready to stop sinning. You need to search your heart as I've been inviting you this morning. Search it for anger. Search it for foolishness. Search it for fear. Search it for despair. You need to begin to pray, Lord, show me my heart. Help me see it. Holy Spirit, reveal to me what's going on in there that I might know. You need to have courage and get confirmation. You can ask the person you came with to church today. Show them what you wrote down as the title when you changed sinful to a a specific word, when you started to get dangerous about your sin, and say, do you think this might be what I need to work on in 2019? Show them. Just say, hey, what do you think? Let them confirm it. Maybe they're going to say, no, I think you're good. I think maybe you need to work over here. Don't be ashamed of that. 
That's still the Holy Spirit working and confirming to you what, what he's saying in your heart. And then four, because the Holy Spirit is living in us and because we're not sinful people anymore, we're chosen, adopted, clean, new, loved. Speak to that sinful person and say, stop it. Give them that message that we've been writing today. Read it to you backwards. Stop squinting at the cross when forgiveness is obvious. Stop making half-hearted attempts at growth when full effort is due. Stop asking God for more when he's already given all I need. Stop thinking Jesus loves me less when he always loves me the same. Dear sinful me, stop it. Let me pray.